his tormentor is in him. And when your tormentor is within, where are you going to go? If you had been in the boat with Jesus last night, and this man awoke from this deep sleep and spoke to the wind and spoke to the waves and they obeyed, you would begin, just as the disciples, I believe, began last night, you would begin a process in your soul and in your mind of coming to believe this man Jesus to be the great I Am the holy of holies. And coming to this understanding, having it dawn upon you who this man really is, that he is the holy of holies, what would you most expect from this man? You would expect him to be more ritually clean than anyone you know. And within hours of beginning to show them that He is the Holy of Holies, He takes them into the greatest episode of uncleanness in all their lives. He is revealing something to them of the character of the Messiah and of the Father who sent the Messiah as He goes to the most unclean place He could possibly go. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him, out of the tombs. So Mark is careful there to make us see that not only is he living among the tombs, he comes to Jesus from the tombs. He is a dead man living among the dead. He is spiritually dead. He's metaphorically dead. For all intents and purposes, he's physically dead. Yes, he's breathing and still moving, but his life is death. That's what his life is comprised of. And out of the tombs, This man with an unclean spirit comes to Jesus. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. Now that word translated lived, oftentimes we talk about how one Greek word will need four or sometimes five English words to translate it. You know how sometimes that's, that's commonplace as we study the Scriptures? This is the reverse. That word lived is actually translating three, three Greek words, if I can speak. Three Greek words that basically say this, that he had a dwelling, but also the prefix kata is added, which means down. So what Mark is literally saying is that he had a dwelling down in the tomb. You see the emphasis there. Mark is, is describing his abode, this tomb, which would have been some sort of a cave. He's describing it like an abyss. Now we're going to see abyss a little bit later in the passage as the demons are going to be fearful that Jesus is going to throw them into the abyss. Well, this man came from the abyss. He is the one being tormented in the abyss and he comes out from down among the tombs. He comes out to Jesus because he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. Listen and open your heart, if you will, to the plight of this man. Because what I feel strongly about in these next few verses, I feel that this, as we talk about superlatives, this in all of Scripture, 
is the Bible's premier description of human misery, of human wretchedness, of human agony. Who is the scriptural example that we think of when we want to think of an example of suffering and affliction? Who do we think of? Job. Let me suggest to you, Job's affliction couldn't hold a candle to this man. Job's affliction was temporary. Job lived a very blessed life, and then he had a temporary time of affliction, and that affliction was great. But then he was restored back to a blessed life. Furthermore, Job's affliction, as we'll see a little bit later, Job's affliction was a contrary type of affliction. Job's affliction was entirely from without, attacking him from without. This man's affliction is different. Let me suggest this is the Scripture's premier illustration of absolute human misery, agony, and wretchedness. Listen to the description. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. So what Mark just gave us there is a little bit of history of the man. These things are things that we wouldn't know if we just witnessed the events that take place in Mark chapter 5. These are things that, that pertain to the history of the person. What's been happening to him over the last few years. So as we'll see in the passage, I believe there's a bit of an amount of time that passes between Jesus' casting out of the demon known as Legion and the townspeople arriving in anger and fear. And in that time, I think that there was some exchange that took place. I think Jesus spent some time teaching him, teaching him of what had just happened to him and some other things we'll talk about a little bit later. But also, I think during this time, perhaps he told his story. And Peter's there and Peter's listening. And that's how we know something of the man's history of how he had been this man that nobody could bind anymore. So in my imagination, there's a lot of gaps to fill in here, but we have to think a little bit about these gaps and, and what made this what this may have looked like. And so maybe there was a, a period of time here in which the townspeople from where he lived, maybe there's a time in which there's compassion and there was mercy that was shown to him. He is possessed of these evil spirits. And as we said previously when we talked about the demonic, our understanding, our doctrine of the demonic would lead us to understand that at some point there was some sort of invitation on the part of this man towards at least the first demon. There was some type of a welcoming or some, at some level an invitation for the demon to come within. But having done that, Oh, it's exploded now into something completely different. Something that he has no control over. But maybe in the first days, in the first years of this experience of his life, maybe the town had compassion on him. And in their compassion, they, they did what they could to try to help him. But it quickly became obvious that he was a danger, not only to himself, but to others. Matthew said that he terrorized the whole region, that everybody was afraid to pass by the region because he would attack them. And so maybe there was some compassion that was shown to him and they tried to restrain him. Maybe at first with ropes and then he breaks the ropes, but then they resort to chains and then he's breaking the chains. How did the chains get put on him? Did he cooperate? Was this uh, something like, you know, how we sort of see from the old movies of 
of Dracula or werewolf or whatever, that there's sort of this period of sanity. But then the monster knows that a change is coming and he asks people to bind him up. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe he knew that there was this monster living within him. And he knew that this monster would get out of control and he would ask people to bind him. But then he would break free. Or maybe it was completely involuntary. Maybe the townspeople would come up behind him with a club and club him over the head and knock him unconscious and bind him with the shackles and the chains, hand and foot. And then he would awake and scream and wrench and break the chains free. Maybe that's what was happening. We don't know. But what we do know is that this is a picture of absolute torment, of misery, of wretchedness. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, not just a couple times. This was habitually bound with chains and shackles, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. So we know that demons and angels, demons are are fallen angels. We know that angels and demons possess a far greater physical strength than do humans. We know this, for example, from Matthew 28, when the women are going to the tomb and they're saying to themselves, what are we doing? There's, there's a boulder there. We, we can't move that. And they get there and the angel has rolled the boulder to the side and is sitting on it. So we know that the, the angels and the demons possess a physical strength far greater than any human strength. And it's these demons within him that are apparently giving him this superhuman type of strength. So right now, let me plant the thought into your mind of a theme. And you know the theme because we've talked about it many times. It's the theme of the strong man. And how Jesus is the strong man. He's the greater strong man that has come to kick the lesser strong man out of his kingdom. Back from chapter 3, he tells this story. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So right now we're immediately thinking of strong man bound, which is him. He's the strong man that nobody could bind. Yet the greater strong man is here and the greater strong man is going to bind the lesser strong man and then the greater strong man will plunder his house, meaning he will harvest a soul from the house of these demons. So no one had the strength to subdue him. That word subdue literally is a word that would have been used in regard to animals. It would be more literally translated tame. No one could tame him. You see the subhuman picture that we're shown here of one who needs to be tamed and managed and tied up and chained up like an animal that, that he apparently is. No one had the strength to tame him. Night and day. Once again, there's evidence there that this is a Jew writing this because that's the Jewish way of thinking of the passing of days. Night and day, not day and night like we would think. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. So that word crying out doesn't mean that he was shouting blasphemous words. That word crying out means that he was screaming out inarticulate sounds, shrieks, would be a good translation. He was shrieking. So imagine day and night, there's this man living down there and and we're all afraid of him because as Matthew says, if you go near him, he'll attack you. So there's this thing 
living down there at the tombs. And just imagine how during the night, maybe the night is just coming on and the family is just sort of being gathered in from that day's work in the fields and the, the kids are coming in, everybody's sort of coming in. And then you hear, off in the distance, you hear that shriek, that inhuman shriek. And you know what it is. You know it's that thing down there. Or maybe during the day as you and the other ladies are headed, headed to the market, you hear that shriek. And you know it makes your blood curl. It makes your goosebumps come up on your back because you know what that is. You've seen it before. You've been terrorized by it before. You've been almost attacked by it before. Maybe he's killed people. Maybe he's attacked people and taken their life or hurt them very badly. Maybe you know someone who has been attacked by him and you hear that sound. Day and night, or night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and doing something else, cutting himself with stones. So he's immersed in self-harm. The demons that possess him, it is their goal to destroy him because they hate him. As demons hate every bearer of the image of God, whether, the, whether they are a host to a demon or whether they are a follower of Satan or whether they're a follower of God, it doesn't matter. Demons hate all who bear the image of God and it's their goal to destroy all who bear the image of God. And so in their hatred, they make this man to cut himself, but it's more than this. If you've ever perhaps known of someone or heard or perhaps read of uh, the phenomenon known as cutting. Anybody ever heard of these? Sometimes people will do this. They will, they will engage in this habit of cutting themselves. And as I've read about people who get trapped in this, this habit of cutting, one of the things that is a common denominator for those who have experienced this but yet have come out of that, one of the things is, is that people will, you know, there's, this is a hard thing to understand. And so people will wonder, why? Why do you do that? Because typically when a person cuts, they're not cuts that are life-threatening. It's not like they're cutting their wrist or cutting an artery in their neck. They're cutting things that aren't going to take their life, but they're going to scar and they're going to hurt and they're going to bleed. And so oftentimes people will, will just be un, not understanding. Why? Why do you do this? And, and clearly it's a scream for help. It's, it's a cry for help from people who can't ask for help, but they try to ask for help in this way. So that's going on. But then there's something deeper. There's a common denominator that I've often read about people that are survivors of this. And it goes like this. They will try to articulate something, something like this. I was trying to cut it out of me. What was hurting me? It was like I, in a way that they don't really understand or can't explain. What they're trying to say is I was trying to cut out of me what was hurting me. And that's a picture of this man here. His tormentor is in him. And that's what differentiates him from Job. Job's tormentor was without. His tormentor is within. And when your tormentor is within, where are you going to go? There's nowhere to go. There's no escaping it. Because it's in you. Are you starting to get a sense 
of his wretchedness? No one else in Scripture parallels this as far as a picture of the absolute pit of human misery. Day and night among the tombs and the mountains, he was always shrieking out and cutting himself with stones. So if we were to see him, we would see a man that was covered with old scars as well as recent scabs and probably fresh blood as well because that's, this was his habit. He was immersed in self-harm and self-destruction. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. That word fell down has nothing to do with him tripping. That's a word that Scripture uses to speak of falling prostrate in worship. We see other examples of this. For example, Matthew 2 and verse 2. They say, uh, the shepherds say, where is he? I'm sorry, the, the wise men, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Same word. Or a little bit later, they fell down. The same wise men or magi fell down and worshiped him. That's the word that Mark uses here. He doesn't trip. He falls down to worship him. So he sees him from afar, but he also is there when he's getting out of the boat. So how do we reconcile verse 5 with verse uh, 2. How do we reconcile that? That he, As Jesus steps out of the boat, he's there, but he also sees him from afar and runs to him. I think that the way that we put those together, those two together is this. The man apparently sees Jesus when he's still in the boat. Jesus is afar in the boat. He sees him in the boat. And from that point, he begins running And by the time Jesus' boat gets to the land and Jesus steps out, He's there. And He falls down before Him. So what made the man come to Jesus? What, What was it? Something about the man in this boat compels this wretched person to run and fall before Him. What was it? How did he know to come to Jesus? Furthermore, why would the demons allow him to come to Jesus? The only answer that makes sense to me, of course the text doesn't tell us, but the only answer that makes sense to me is that when the boat is seen, when the man looks out from his cave of the tombs and he sees this boat, the demons within him must have lurched with hatred. They must have vomited hatred upon seeing the Son of Man coming. And perhaps something inside this man, maybe he had still just enough for wherewithal to put together enough thoughts to say, if somebody in that boat is so hated and so feared by these things within me, then maybe they can help me. They are my only hope. Somehow the ones living in me hate him so much and fear him so much. Maybe he is the only one that can do anything for me because surely he hasn't heard of Jesus. Word of Jesus likely hasn't reached this side of the Sea of Galilee. If it has, he doesn't know about it. He doesn't have any contact with anybody. He doesn't have contact with the town. Even if the townspeople know about him, he doesn't know about him. Furthermore, even if the townspeople have heard about Jesus, 
There's no pictures of Jesus. There's no images floating around where they can look and know what person to be looking for. And even if there was, Jesus is still way out on the sea. The only way he could have known that there's somebody in the boat that had relevance for his situation was the demons within him had a reaction to that man that caused him to know this man coming on the boat or there's, there's somebody in that boat. There's something about that boat that spells my possible freedom from this. And so he runs. Now, why do the demons allow him to go to Jesus? The demons obviously are in control of him. They're making him cut himself and shriek. We know from other stories in Scripture of what the demons were able to make people do. They would throw people into a fire or make them foam at the mouth or different things. Why do the demons let him go to Jesus? We don't know. But the only thing that I can think is that what else are they going to do? Because you see, the demons know some things about Jesus that people often struggle with. And one of the things that the demons know about Jesus is that he's God is spirit. And there's nowhere that they're going to go to run from him. I think they know that. I think they know very plainly that it would do no good for them to flee from Jesus' presence. Because fleeing from his presence will do nothing. Think of Psalm 139, where the psalmist is praising God and saying, where will I go away from your presence? I can go in the grave. I can go as as, uh, Jonah on the ocean. Where am I going to go away from your presence? Now, the psalmist is praising God for that, but the demons also know that. Where where are we going to go? Remember the story? Well, actually, don't you remember it it yet because it hasn't happened in Mark's gospel yet. Mark chapter 7, the story of the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and pleads that Jesus would cast the demon out of her daughter. And then Jesus says to her, go for the demon has left. And Jesus is nowhere near her daughter. Her daughter is in another country. And she goes and finds that the demon has... And so Jesus didn't need to go to her daughter to cast the demon out. Jesus' power over the demon in her daughter had nothing to do with physical proximity. And so I think the demons know that. What's, what good is it going to do to run away from him? It's not like being away from his presence is going to save us from anything. So the man, I think, just overwhelmed with this compulsion... That these things within me are revolting so hard against that boat right there. That's where I need to go. And so he runs. Now, if I could get into the thoughts of anyone in Scripture, wouldn't that be fun if you could sort of get into the thoughts of people as these things are happening? If I could get into the thoughts of people in this episode, the one mind I wouldn't want to get in is the man's. But if I could get into the, the disciples' mind, wouldn't that be interesting? So here are the disciples. They've just spent a sleepless night on the Sea of Galilee in which they saw Jesus speak to water, and the water obeyed. And here they come to the shore, and they're still sort of grappling with all this. And, and just as Jesus sets his foot out, they look up. And here comes this man. Luke says he didn't wear clothes anymore. So he's naked all the time. So they look up and they see this creature naked, scars, scabs, fresh blood, shrieking, running downhill to him. What would you think? I mean, they they probably are assuming that Jesus protected them from the storm last night. So 
he'll protect us from this maniac. But surely they're thinking, what in the world is coming down the hill towards us? And so he comes barreling down the hill. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, picture in your mind or in your, in your mind's ear, if you will, this man's voice. Because we're told earlier that always, night and day, he was shrieking. So think of what that does to the voice. Think of how hard and how strong and how harsh his voice likely sounds. Not to mention what possible effect the demons might have had on his voice. You know, like, like the movies often show, uh, when they show this sort of thing, they'll, they'll modify the voice and make the voice real spooky. So even putting that aside, just think of the man's voice now. For years, night and day, he's shrieking. And his voice is loud and harsh. And we don't know, maybe, maybe the demons living within him, maybe they have distorted his physical appearance. Maybe they've distorted the features of his face. But here he is naked, bleeding, scarred, barreling downhill, shrieking with a loud voice. And he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So literally, what have you to do with me? Literally, that is what business do we have with each other? Or to put it in the words of Paul, what business does light have with darkness? What business do we have? What relations do we have with each other?